Good morning, everyone. My name is Ryan Dennis. It's good to see you all. We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12, it's on page 900 in the Pew Bible, if you want to use that one. So Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says, By the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be a son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive the harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many people, many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came And dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Well, have you ever heard the expression, I'm assuming you have, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing because it can make you think you understand something better than you actually do. And then as a result, do something that is foolish or harmful uh, or something bad. Uh, So, and you can see this in all areas of life. So right now, uh, it's the time of year, I think it's still the time of year, where people are enthusiastic about exercise. I I know we're three weeks in, but I think a lot of people who are excited in January to make some changes probably made it to week three. Um, I didn't, but uh, most people probably did. Uh, But one thing that happens, especially when people begin to work out, they have a general idea of what to do. Maybe they got an app that shows them what to do. They go to the gym. Uh, But a lot of people, as they're beginning to work out, they end up hurting themselves, right? You do something too much, you do it with the wrong form, and the next thing you know, you have pain somewhere in your body. Or in the workplace, as I've worked in uh, with software for the past 10 years, uh, it's often those, it's it's not usually the beginners who make the biggest mistakes. Uh, They make their mistakes, uh, but they're usually small mistakes because you don't trust them with very much. Uh, But it's usually those who have been working with the system for a little while They're a little overly confident in what they can do, uh, and then they totally mess something up and and massive things break. Uh, And and sometimes it's even just maybe it could lead to uh, being embarrassed in a conversation. So just last night, we had some friends over for dinner, uh, and one of them happens to be an elder here. I won't mention who it is, Uh, but we were discussing a topic, and I thought I knew what I was talking about. It turned out I didn't, but this friend, this elder very kindly said, uh, the problem is, is that you're ignorant. <laughs> Blanket statement. I, that's a quote. And 
if you know our elders, you might be able to make some guesses as to which one would say such a thing to a church member. Uh, these are the people leading us, but no, they are they're good men. But having a little bit of knowledge about something can give you the sense that you know a lot about it, and then you end up making a fool of yourself. And in our passage today, the scribes show us that a little bit of knowledge about the Bible can also be a dangerous thing. See, the scribes were the religious teachers, the, uh, the theological experts, you might say, of Jesus' day. It was their job to study the scriptures, to interpret them, to know them well, and then to teach the people. And they were convinced they knew what the Messiah would be like when he arrived. And they were convinced that they knew what kind of lives God wanted them to be living as they waited for this Messiah. But it turned out they were wrong. Their expectations of the Messiah and what he would be like when he came, their, their expectations of what kind of upright lives God wanted them to live, they both turned out to be false. And so the main idea that I think is expressed in our passage this morning is this. Jesus is the true Messiah who is looking for true devotion in his people. Just that simple statement. Jesus is the true Messiah who is looking for true devotion in his people. In other words, he is the true Messiah, not like the one that the scribes were expecting, and he is looking for a true devotion to God in his people, which is not like uh, that which the scribes were exhibiting, what they were displaying devotion should look like. See, we'll look first at the true Messiah, the true Messiah. And as we do so, it's important to remember that we are in the last week of Jesus' life. The cross is just a few days away. The empty tomb will be uh, just a couple more, few more days after that. This has been a busy day for Jesus. It began all the way back in chapter 11, verse 20. And there has been nonstop questioning and testing of him ever since he entered the temple uh, in, verses, in verse 27, where the, the question first arose, where does your authority come from? Who do you think you are to teach? Who do you think you are to say these things, to do these things? And Jesus has patiently and wisely responded to all of their questions, and now his opponents, uh, they shut up. They, they see it's getting them nowhere. Uh, it's time to stop asking questions because this isn't working. And now, after answering all the questions, it's Jesus' turn to ask a question, and it, it turns out to be the question of the day. What all the other questions hang on is this. Verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? So this question of the day revolves around the identity of the Messiah who was to come, or the Christ, depending on your translation. They both mean the same thing, one from, coming from the Hebrew, one from the Greek, uh, but they essentially mean the same thing, the anointed one. And God's people were waiting, they were longing for the promised Messiah to come, one who was anointed by God to come and deliver God's people to save them and to once again set up God's kingdom upon the earth. And they thought that this king would be like those that came before. They thought this king would be another one like King David. He would be a descendant of David and as a result, an earthly king similar to David, a similar rule. And they had good reasons to expect this. 
Uh, we read earlier from 2 Samuel 7, where God made that great promise to David that he will raise up after him one of his descendants uh, that will come from his body and that he would establish his throne forever. So there were promises made to David. Not only that, but the Old Testament prophets spoke of this continuously, this offspring who would come from David's line and one day rule forever. You can look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. So were these scriptures wrong? Were they mistaken? Was Jesus saying these aren't really uh, correct? Well, no. Jesus, Jesus never denied that he was the son of David. That's not what he is getting at here. Earlier in Mark, we've seen people refer to Jesus as the son of David. We saw blind Bartimaeus crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All the latter, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And Jesus didn't correct them and say, that's not who I am. No, he, he mercifully healed him. He saw no need to correct uh, blind Bartimaeus. We read earlier in our service the words that the angel spoke uh, before Jesus' birth about uh, that God would give him the throne of his father David. So we see that uh, there's not a a conflict here that Jesus isn't the son of David. So what's the problem? What is Jesus getting at with this question? Let's look at the next couple verses. Verse 36 and 37. David himself says, By the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I, put, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, uh, the first verse. Uh, and this psalm was widely accepted as a royal psalm and a psalm that was about the Messiah who was to come. Uh, so all of his listeners were in agreement that this psalm was talking about the Messiah uh, and it was a psalm that was written by David himself. So here we are getting David's thoughts about the Messiah. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is speaking these words about the Messiah who was to come. And if you were to turn to Psalm 110, you can do so if you want, but we won't spend there long. You would notice that the first Lord mentioned uh, is translated in, it, it's in our English Bibles. You see it in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, R, and D. And this is how our English Bibles translate the name Yahweh, which was God's covenant name that he revealed himself uh, to Moses by, uh, Yahweh. And it's a name that only refers to God. Nobody else ever receives this name in the Old Testament anywhere in the Bible. The second Lord mentioned, so the Lord said to my Lord, so the my Lord is not in all caps. And that's the English translation of Adonai. So David really wrote, he wrote, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And the name Adonai is used for God hundreds of times. So Adonai can mean God in the Old Testament, but it's not always. We, we see in Genesis, we see Jacob referred to Esau as my Adonai, my Lord. We see David himself is often referred to as my Adonai, my Lord, David the King. So it's, it can mean deity. It can mean someone great and not just an earthly man, but it, it could mean just another earthly king. But Jesus' question shows why that can't be right. Because even if you ignore all the other scriptures and what they have to say about the Messiah who was to come, even if you just look at what David himself has to say about his future son, you know that can't be the case. And Jesus points out with this very simple point. He says, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So if the Messiah is simply just another descendant of David, 
why would David refer to him as his Lord? Why would David look at this future Messiah who was to come and say, this is my Lord, this is my king? Kings don't talk about that about their sons or their future great-great-grandsons. They are not going to be their Lord when they are dead. But David sees this Messiah who was going to come, and he says, my Lord, this is my king. So it's obvious that David sees whoever this person is as someone far greater than himself. In other words, the Messiah is not just the son of David, but he is the Lord of David. He is Lord of all because he is the son of God, which if you will remember all the way back in Mark chapter one, verse one, how is Jesus introduced? He's the son of God. So we see right from the beginning of the gospel, this is not just another son of David. This is not just another descendant that would be king of Israel, but this is the son of God that we are dealing with here. So once again, we see that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. It wasn't inaccurate to call him a son of David, but it was inadequate, right? It wasn't enough to call him the son of David. So to assume that's all that he is, is a terrible mistake. They had a partial understanding, but they thought they had it figured out, and that was a dangerous place for them to be. And to this day, our world continues to abound with partial understandings of who Jesus is. Does it not? Partial understandings of who this Messiah is. And now in one sense, we have to confess that all of our knowledge of Jesus is partial, right? All of our knowledge, it's, uh, we, we, he's too great, he's too glorious for us to truly grasp who he is and to see all of his glory. So in one sense, you know, it, it all, we're all partial. We'll spend all eternity marveling at the unsearchable greatness of Christ. But at the same time, he has made plain through the scriptures, he has made clear through the scriptures those things that we must believe about him and we must, uh, we must delight in and we must embrace. He has made perfectly clear who he is and the things that we must know about him. But whether it is through ignorance or through willful choice, many people are content to stick with that partial understanding of who Jesus is. A Jesus who uh, perhaps is a good moral teacher, but he's not the son of God. Perhaps a good uh, example of how we ought to live our lives, but he's not Lord of all. Perhaps a Jesus who offers us forgiveness, but not a Jesus who requires our repentance. Maybe a Jesus, that Jesus who promises to bless us, we love that one, but not the one that commands that we obey him. Or the Jesus who is loving and compassionate, we like to cling on to that one, which he is towards all people, but maybe not that Jesus who draws the line in the sand as to who's in and who's out of his kingdom. Whatever it might be, these partial understandings of Jesus all have this in common. They are not based on the clear uh, full picture of him that we get throughout the New Testament, throughout all the scriptures. And if we are honest, they are typically the Jesus that we want him to be. We tame down the parts that we don't like, and we kind of form Christ into the kind of Christ that we want him to be. And this was the mistake of the scribes based on their partial, limited knowledge, knowledge and this is the mistake that many make today. But sooner or later, we all have to reckon with the true Messiah. 
Sooner or later, we all have to look this true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the face and decide what we will do with him. Will we oppose him like the scribes? Or will we fall down with David at his feet and say, my Lord? Will we, will we doubt who he is? Or with doubting Thomas, if you remember when he saw the risen Lord Jesus and saw the wounds in his hands and his side and said, my God and my King, my Lord and my God. The scribes missed the Messiah when he was standing right in front of them because they chose to hang on to that partial understanding, hang on to those preconceived notions. We must take care that we don't make that same mistake because all we can do is say, Jesus, I want to know who you are. I open this book and I want to know. And that is how you will come to a true understanding of Jesus. He's made it clear. Read this book, ask him to show you, and you will know this true Messiah. Now, as we look at the next section of our passage, it shouldn't surprise us when we see what kind of men these scribes actually turned out to be in their character. So we'll turn now and look at this true devotion that Jesus is looking for. And we see both a negative example in the scribes and a positive example in the poor widow. And both of those things are vital for us to grasp if we are to understand what this true devotion that God is looking for looks like. Because it's very often that negative examples are just as helpful as positive ones, right? So if you are a new parent and you're trying to figure out, man, what do I do with this baby? Well, you know, what am I going to do for the next 18 years? How do I raise these kids? How do I not mess them up and, you know, uh, and whatever, you know, it, it's helpful for you to look at positive examples and be like, okay, I want to do what they did. I'm going to go ask them, you know, their kids turned out great. Uh, what, what did you do? I want, I, I want to know. I want to learn from, uh, from, from you. But it can also be helpful to think of negative examples, right? You know, there were several dads in particular that I remember growing up uh, and, and thinking later on, well, I know I don't want to be like that guy, right? I, whatever I do, I, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to be constantly critical like that guy. I don't want to be cold and distant like that guy. I don't want to be never around like that guy, right? So you can look at negative examples just as much as positive examples and learn. And so as we read about the scribes and what their religious devotion looked like, well, we should say there too, you know, I don't want to be like that guy, like these men. I, I, that's the opposite of what I want. So let's see what they were like. Verse 38, he also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. So Jesus publicly and pretty harshly warns uh, against these scribes. And this would have been surprising. On this side of uh, history, we see the scribes, we see the Pharisees, we see the, we see the Sadducees, and we look at them in a negative light. But these were the men who were most respected in that society, those who understood the scriptures the most and, and were revered by the people. They were given respect, which we'll see uh, as we go through the descriptions. And he says several things about them. He mentions their long robes that they wore that set them uh, apart from the common people. So they wore these long white robes that were fringed at the ends and uh, different from the dress of the normal people of the day. And so you could see them walking down the street and know, okay, that's a scribe. That's one of the scholars. You know, that's one of the really, that's where the really, I mean, we don't think this way anymore, the really legit religious people. You know, no, no one respects, no one has that kind of 
uh, excitement at a pastor, right? To my dismay, to Godwin's dismay, Ryan Drew. Uh, No one thinks people like that are cool, but they did back then. Uh, And he mentions these greetings. So as they walk down the street, uh, they would be greeted uh, by those who were, uh, it's in a way, lower than them. They, those who studied the Torah and had greater knowledge, uh, it was those with lesser knowledge to go out of their way to greet them. And they would use titles, master, rabbi, and so forth. He mentions the best seats and places of honor. So you get the idea. You know, they were well-respected, uh, well-thought-of, they were esteemed highly, and they were treated accordingly to that. And in general, these things weren't wrong necessarily, right? It's not wrong to call someone pastor. It's not wrong uh, necessarily to wear robes or uh, these different things. There's still churches who do that today. Um, I can thankfully say I've never preached in a robe. Um, I don't know about Godwin or Drew or others, but uh, I did once preach at a church a few times where they had me sit, there's the pulpit, and then they had this fancy chair off to the side. And I sat there when I wasn't preaching. I just stared at everybody. Uh, it didn't make me feel better. That I just felt awkward. It was, um, it's not wrong, but it's just a little weird. Um, so if these things aren't wrong, though, in and of themselves, what is Jesus' problem? What is so wrong with these men in doing these things? Well, there's a key word in these verses that makes it clear, and that, that word in the CSB is want. Other translations use the word like. The King James Version uses the word love. The problem isn't with these things necessarily. Rather, the problem is that this is what they really want. This is what they crave. This is what they desire. This is the motive behind all their religious uh, devotion. They love walking down the street and getting recognized. They love walking into the church and getting respect. They love that sense of superiority that they have over other people. They love it. Their devotion, it's, in essence, it's nothing more than a show to get them attention and admiration from other people. They are proud. They are vain men who aren't so concerned with God's glory as much as they are with their own glory. And if you remember just last week's passage, one of the scribes asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment in the law? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus answered, and that scribe agreed that it is love, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the scribes in general, as a whole, are loving who? Themselves, right? They are loving themselves. And this is seen even in how they pray. Verse 40 says, they say long prayers just for show. They take this most sacred uh, privilege of coming into the presence of God and, and, and speaking to him and listening to him. And they take even that and they turn it into something about themselves. And praying these lengthy prayers loud so everyone can just see how devoted they are, how holy they are. They, I'm sure they sounded beautiful, had great theology uh, and so forth. But in the end, it wasn't prayer at all. They, they didn't care if God was listening. They cared if others were listening. And once again, the scribes serve as a good warning for us today. Because while they're an extreme example, it's easy to look at them and be like, you know, I'm not like that. They're an extreme example. And yet in them, we see at least two common temptations that we all wrestle with to this day. Two common temptations. The first temptation is for our, uh, our devotion to be outwardly intact while it is inwardly void and absent. 
Our devotion still outwardly looks good, but inwardly there's nothing there. So we can sing songs, we can pray prayers, we can listen to sermons all the while. We don't care whatsoever, right? We can go through the motions and just do what we do because it's what it's expected of us. While there's very little love for the Lord, there's very little true worship, there's very little true awe and wonder for who God is. But we go through the motions because it's what we're supposed to do. But don't let your devotion to God become merely an external performance or act. Don't be content to go through those motions. Don't let your love for the Lord dry up. Must take great care for that. And when you find yourself in that place, plead with the Lord to quicken your heart, to, to bring you back to that first love, to restore that, that first, that sweet fellowship you once knew with him and that you long to delight in him. You long to feel these things once more and not have them be just these abstract different things. Yeah, okay, I agree with that. The second temptation, and I can only mention this briefly for the sake of time, but is the desire to be seen and admired by others. Nobody struggles with that, right? To be overly concerned with what other people think of you. If we, if we are honest, we are a lot more like the scribes right here than we'd like to admit. If we are honest, much of the time we, we care far too much about what other people think of us and far too little about what God thinks of us. And it's, a, it's an enslaving thing to live for the approval of others. And the only way that we can truly break free from that is to live for the approval of God. It's to fear God. It's to know that we are accepted in Christ and live out of that place of acceptance to please one person, and that's our Father. It's to live for God alone. But for the scribes, their devotion was outward, and it was for others, living for the approval and the praise of men. Now, Jesus has one final charge against the scribes, which is perhaps the most indicative of their character. In verse 40, he says, they devour widows' houses. Now, widows throughout the scriptures uh, are, are seen as, uh, they're depicted as the most vulnerable members of society. It's, it's constantly warned against exploiting them and taking advantage of them. And in ancient cultures, they especially were. Uh, and, and so here we have these scribes who know their Bible so well. They are the experts in the scriptures. And yet somehow they have no problem taking advantage of widows. And Jesus doesn't tell us exactly how they devour widows' houses, uh, but historians give us some idea of things that were happening at that time. Uh, so the scribes were not allowed to take a salary for their office as scribe, their profession of, of studying God's word and teaching it. So they had two options. They could either work a profession on the, on the side, kind of like the Apostle Paul did as a tent maker, or uh, they could get support and donations from other people. And hospitality was strongly encouraged. Uh, it was especially admirable if someone who was wealthy relieved a scribe of their concerns for their livelihood and enabled them just to live off of their donations. And as experts in, in the law, they served as lawyers, they served as estate planners. And so as a result of these, this kind of position, this influence, it appears that many of them were using that influence to manipulate widows into, do, into donating more and more and more, giving beyond what they really should and taking advantage of them in the process. Whatever the specifics were, Jesus' accusation is clear that they are 
preying on the most vulnerable people in society. And it's no wonder that Jesus ends his warning against these scribes with that harsh statement at the end. These will receive the harsher judgment. These will receive the greater, on judgment day, the harshest judgment is coming for these men, these type of people. Despite how they look on the outside, they are no different than the other manipulators and abusers of of others. And, And to make it worse, they use God and his word to that very end. And sadly, there are many who still do this today. But in summary, we see in the scribes an extreme example of false devotion, an extreme example of what God is not looking for, one that is outward and fake, one that is for self and uses God and others, one that is not marked whatsoever by a love for God and a love for people. It is a false devotion. Well, if Jesus can't point to the religious leaders, the expert, the elite of his day, to demonstrate what true devotion to God looks like, where, where else can he turn? And he turns to probably the least likely person someone in the temple would have guessed. A poor widow. A poor widow. Verses 41 through 44. Jesus is sitting across from the temple treasury. He's watching people donate money. uh, And the treasury that he is looking at, uh, once again, scholars say, it consisted of these 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles. I don't know what a trumpet-shaped receptacle looks like, but they were these metal uh, containers where people would bring and they would donate their money to the temple tax and to various other causes, various other purposes. And remember, there was obviously no uh, checks, there were no credit cards, and so if you were going to give, you brought coins with you, and you would have to bring all that you wanted to give and then deposit it into one of these metal containers. And when you drop metal coins into metal containers, what happens? Clink, 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 you know, know, noise, right? You hear the sounds. And so as you uh, watch and as you listen, you can get a relatively good idea of how much someone is giving. And Jesus is watching this happen. It says, many rich people were putting in large sums, and that's certainly not a bad thing, right? The Bible commends those who are wealthy, they should give generously. Jesus is not saying these rich people are doing anything wrong, but they're not the ones who catch his eye. Verse 42, then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. And Jesus sees this. He he calls his disciples over. This is something they need to see. This is somebody they need to look at. There's a lesson they still haven't learned. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. And I imagine Peter probably had that same confused look on his face, right? Okay, what are you talking about now? How is that possible? How, how did this, these two small coins, how is that possibly more? The, the, the coins they mentioned were called lepta. They were the smallest uh, coins in circulation. By modern standards, we're talking cents. We're not talking dollars. Uh, she probably could have purchased a small handful of flour or a very meager meal with this amount of money. So we're not talking about like she, she emptied this huge bank account and gave everything. She's giving very, very little. How could that be more than these large sums? Verse 44, for they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, 
all she had to live on. Jesus is impressed, not by the amount, not the two coins that she gave, but impressed by the sacrifice that she made. The wealthy had large sums to their name and gave out of that. This poor widow had two coins that were both in her pocket, and she gave them both. The rich gave what they would never miss, while this poor widow gave what she really couldn't afford. If she wanted to eat, she gave more because her sacrifice was greater. In the eyes of man, it was nothing But in the eyes of God, it was extravagant. And so we see this contrast between the poor widow's giving and the giving of the wealthy and their large sums. But we also see an even greater contrast than just the poor widow and those donating. And that's the great contrast that we see between the poor widow and the scribes that we just read about who devour widows' houses. Simply simply picture her in comparison to the scribes that we read about. She had no long distinguishing robes. Her shabby clothes drew no attention. She she received no special greetings. No one was going out of their way to say uh, anything to her, master, rabbi, nothing. She got no honor, no greetings as she walked in. She drew no attention as she made her offering. No one would have been impressed by what she gave. No one would have heard the prayers that she uttered. No one cared. But the real contrast comes not in these external things as much as the internal things, right? The things that were going on in contrast between the two, uh, the scribes and the widow's heart. They wanted respect and admiration from others. She was simply bringing an offering to God unnoticed. They, They did everything they did in order to be seen by others. While she knew nobody was watching, she was just offering in the sight of God. Their so-called devotion was marked by pride. Uh, She had nothing to be proud about. She was humble. They would say for good reason. She was humble, but she was humble. They did things for their own benefit while she gave to her detriment. They were loving themselves. By her sacrifice, it shows she was truly loving the Lord. The list goes on. You could compare the two and draw startling contrasts. And this is what Jesus loves about her. This is what Jesus sees as true devotion in her. It is a life that is truly lived for God. She's concerned about what God sees. She is offering to God. She is aiming at pleasing him and loving him, unlike the scribes. And throughout the gospel of Mark, Jesus has again and again been trying to teach his disciples and us by extension that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. He has different values. He has a different perspective. He sees things differently. He's already told us previously, you want to become great, as the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest? Be the servant of all. Humble yourself. Be the slave of all. You want to be great? Be like this child. He's not significant in the eyes of anyone in that culture, but he's trust, just simple trust and faith. And now become like this poor, seemingly insignificant widow. She's the greatest example of devotion that's in this temple. Become like this poor widow. Jesus does not look at people the way the world looks at people. Jesus is not impressed the way the world is impressed with impressive people, so to speak. His thoughts are not our thoughts, but he is impressed with those who worship in simplicity with an eye to please him. It's not how well you pray or how long you can pray, but that you truly pray. It's not how great you sing or how loud you sing or how people are watching you sing, 
but that you sing to him from your heart. It's not how well you speak or, or, or whatever, but it's that you speak the truth in love and you love the truth. You truly care about it. It's not how well loved you are by others, but it's that you love others. It's, he has a different way of measuring things. And the ones that catch God's eye even still are not the most talented. It's not the ones with the biggest personality or the most success or the most wealthy or however else the world judges success. Rather, they're the ones who present themselves to God and say, Lord, you are everything to me. And I know I don't have much to offer, but all that I have is yours. I, I have little, you are everything, and I give you all that I have. This is the type of devotion that he is looking for in his people. And as we come to a close in a few moments, I just want to answer one, one more question, which is, how do we get to that place? How do we break free with, from our love affair with the world and wanting the praise of others? And how do we begin to see things rightly? How does our devotion become more than just an external act of things that we go through the motions with? How do we become more like that widow and less like the scribe? Do we, do we need to try harder? Do we need to just grit our teeth and sacrifice more? Empty our bank accounts? Of course not. There's more than one answer to the question, but I think it primarily comes down, once again, to knowledge, our knowledge of God. If you have a little knowledge of who God is, a little knowledge of who Jesus is as the Messiah, you will have a little devotion to God. But as you know him more, as you see him more clearly, your love for him, your devotion to him will also increase. As your knowledge of him, as you know him more, increases, you will also love him more and be devoted to him more. These things go hand in hand, and that is why so many of the prayers of the New Testament are prayers for knowledge, for wisdom, for revelation, for understanding. Our great need again and again is to see and to know and to feel within us the greatness of our Messiah. Because when you see his greatness, when you behold the, him upon the cross, the wonders of the cross, and at the same time you have a sense of your unworthiness, what do you get? Awe, wonder, worship, a desire to give up everything, to please and love this master who has so loved us. When you behold his glory and his holiness, you get a, a small glimpse of his majesty and know without a shadow of doubt that nothing on this earth compares to him, what do you get? A life of love and devotion to God. It, it flows out of our knowledge of who he is. It flows out of the fact that we see him and behold him as the glorious God that he is, and then we live in response to that knowledge. It flows out of our understanding of who he is. Because if you see this God and behold his glory, his greatness as such, Whatever the sacrifice is, whatever the cost, it doesn't compare. It's all worth it because if we have Christ, we have all we could ever need, and then we gladly give back to him and offer our lives to him in response. So pray that you might know him more and seek after that knowledge and knowing this Jesus more than you seek after anything else in the world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you. 
We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much for our true Messiah. Our true Messiah who saves us from our sins that we are in desperate need of being saved from. And Lord, our prayer is would you show us more of your glory? Would you show us more of your greatness? Would you help us to see you more clearly than we currently do? Would you help us to be in awe and wonder of who you are and to worship you with our lives? We pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment now to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.